welcome to You're Making It Worse. We're here, we're queer, who cares? I'm Elliot Glazer. And I'm Brent Sullivan. And I'm H. Allen Scott. Textual healing. So, guys, they've canceled Spider-Man, Tom Holland. Did you hear about that? By the way, fucking finally. I am so... What do you have against Tom Holland? No, 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 no. I'm sorry, Spider-Man. I am so done with these cookie-cutter action trash No, 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 I'm going to have to They mean nothing. I'm going to fight you on this. Spider-Man is... The last Spider-Man was so fucking good. It was oh, so good. It was so good. What, what did he fight someone with his web? I mean, who fucking cares? What what kind of movies are you just yeah, watching? Look, look at, like, but see, look at what happened this week. You spend Saturday nights watching 9-11 documentaries. I don't think people should <laughs> take advice on what movies to watch for me. Uh, excuse <laughs> me, I watched four plane crash documentaries last mm-hmm. night, Alan. Mm-hmm. But look at what happened this weekend. Barbie four? and Oppenheimer. <laughs> Barbie and Oppenheimer come out. These yeah. are movies that aren't sequels and prequels and sequels, and they're not action films. They're they're well, I will agree relevant cultural I, movies, I will, and they blew up. I will agree with you there. I do want more original film ideas. That said, though, Spider Man was really good, and Tom Holland okay. Spider Man, I would argue, is probably the best Spider Man. Okay, all right. go all. ahead, go ahead, continue though, continue. But Tom Holland has a new series, a mini series out on Apple TV plus called The Crowded Room. It's inspired by a true story, really interesting story about Mill- Billy Milligan, the first person in the US acquitted of a major crime by pleading dissociative identity disorder. Basically he had multiple identities. And mm. one of his personalities is queer and he goes to a bar and he gets fucked and it shows in the whole scene, like him getting fucked in the bathroom or it's not like graphic mm. graphic, but it's just mm. Tom Holland bottoming. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I think Elliot was a stand in for that scene. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And straight Twitter went crazy because they were pissed that Spider-Man went gay. And it's, it's, it's what's wild about it is it just shows you how different the times are in that, you know, both past Spider-Mans have done, have gone gay and other very prominent. I mean, Andrew Garfield won a Tony for going gay and the Tobey Maguire played one in Wonder Boys was a big Oscar movie. So like they've done other times on gay, but now, and also because Tom Holland's was particularly probably more graphic than some of the other portrayals. um, They just couldn't have it. It was whole, not my Spider-Man. That was the whole thing. And what's interesting is like now, there, it's so interesting. This is an actor. This is an actor acting. This is what actors do. They, and the, the miniseries is not getting great reviews or anything, but like he is an actor. He took on a role. Yeah. He's doing the role. That's his job. And also, it's such an old thing. It's such an old trope. It's not new. No, it's actor, not new they, at all. Almost 20 years ago and during Brokeback Mountain, there was like a gay sex scene. Like yeah. it's just so bizarre. Jillian Hall bottomed and he has been able to have a great career. No one's canceled yeah. him on screen. And so there's a lot of there's a little bit of bottom shaming, but also another point that is interesting when you brought up the Barbie movie, uh, there's a trans actress in the Barbie movie. I'm forgetting her name now, but there's a oh, how dare she has a, she's like one of the Barbies. She has a smaller role and she's not she's she's the doctor, I think, in the Barbie movie. And she's in she's in she has lines like she has definitely scenes, but she's not like one of the major characters. Yeah. And the conservatives are going crazy, even though the film has nothing to do with trans issues doesn't ever she literally is just playing a barbie she's not playing a trans barbie she's playing she might be a trans barbie we don't know was never explained but she is just a barbie and just by her sheer presence 
in the film. The sheer presence of a trans person getting a gig Acting. and having a job. <laughs> yeah, right. Living, offensive. paying their bills. Right. Exactly. Is offensive to these people, the same people who are saying not by Spider-Man. It is an insane time. But it also, it's just such a, it's such a jump. I mean, again, it's not even like they're watching a, a, a gay Spider-Man. They're, they're watching, and by the way, if they're not watching, they probably read or heard about this sh- minute miniseries on apple t apple tv plus yeah where the act it's like it's so again this to me is no different than the bizarre blow up of over dylan mulvaney where these where people seemingly are so bored that they are making these connections that are like links link upon link upon link you know like dylan mulvaney happens to be a trans activist who happened to get a thing for her birthday and i couldn't be- i still i couldn't can't believe that people honed in on that and were offended by it and this thing too a it seems so archaic in like 1993 to be mad that an actor is going gay action hero or not but secondly it's like i can't believe anybody would would waste their time i just still cannot believe anybody would waste their time the only thing that actually does surprise me like logistically is that it's happening on online it feels like such a that surprises you well i guess that it's like it's such an old way to be offended. I understand why, like, how how Kid Rock and all the bizarre conservatives yeah. are would use the internet to get mad about something trans. Yeah, this is so non-offensive that I'm almost like it almost feels analog to me. So that's where I get confused. Where I'm like, really, these these dinosaurs are kicking this up on, on Twitter. Um, but I will yeah. say that I saw that in response, this whole like. TikTok trend, I guess, started happening where gay queer couples were like doing the Spider-Man kiss, the upside down Spider-Man yeah. kiss. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I mean that's the yeah, yeah, I mean, that'll rue the day. Well, I mean, don't forget, this is like this is cancel culture. I mean, you know, a good reminder that the right constantly rails against cancel culture. Also, so by the way, so do we. But also the right loves cancel culture. They they basically originated it really back in the aughts. But but the left kind of took over and we took control. And and I think there's even to this day, there's always these moments when I talk to friends about boycotting certain companies or whatever. I'm just there's this belief that like, oh, they won't do it to us. We are the righteous ones and that cancel culture only works one way. And we'll we'll always get companies and people to do what we want if we just withhold our money. And you're reminded that like it works the other way, too, and that maybe we all should stop this fucking garbage social media horseshit cancel culture because it's it's affecting, you know, it's it's hard to keep track of what anything means, who's who believes in what. It's just it's well, just absolute noise and nonsense. Are, are you familiar with that um that song, that country song, James oh, yeah. Aldine or whatever? You don't you know about this brand? No. This country Wait, I'm sorry, do I know about a Jason Aldine song? No, I don't. It's a, I mean neither did neither did I, but this guy Jason Aldine is a country singer, released a song in a video called like not in my, t- not in our small town, or like not here, not in our town. And it's it's a song about like, you know. The, the 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 you know bucolic the bucolic americana of a small town where you know people's band together and you can't come you know if you come for one of us you come for all of us and the music video is pretty controversial because it shows protesters and mm. speaks very adamantly about like blm and tries to show that but they also 
fucked up by using footage from Canada and old footage. Like yeah. it's all a mess. And all of that being said, to your point, Brent, he is claiming that he's trying to be canceled, even though I don't know if that the, that was the case. The song is like number one as a result. Well, of, I mean, on the iTunes of, chart, which means nowadays number one on the iTunes charts is 50 people bought it. Right. Well, including but, myself, uh, but, since but I'm, I'm still buying my music on iTunes. But he's I'm just saying. You really? You, of course. He's just Sorry, he, he's saying it preemptively as a way to then say they're trying. Because they're trying to cancel me, you should support yeah. me. And so in doing so, it's a built-in way of getting conservatives. Yeah. That's, and that's, that's why we should all take a step back and reevaluate what is important to us when it comes to these campaigns. Because when you could, I'm sorry, Alan, I'll, don't forget what you're going to say. But when you can, when you could use it to push your music sales, then then we've clearly gone past real messages. That's the know? root of it all, though. And that's what I was going to say is that like, you know, the whole not my Spider-Man or even the whole response to it of kissing upside down or the whole response to the Jason fuckery one. What's his name? Aldine. Like all of that. It's all created for attention, which is the root baiting. of social media. It's baiting people to be angry over something so that the attention then goes on the person who's the loudest, meaning like the, the, the what's the one now about the Barbie guy, the conservative guy, Ben something who who said like 43 yeah ben shapiro that's it um going like taking down the barbie movie for 43 minutes which is just and then in, in a in a dumpster he puts a bunch of barbies and he burns them or something and that's like oh, his video and it's all a, on every side the left and the right it's a desperate cry for relevancy and attention mm -hmm. in a space that is becoming more and more niche because more and more people it's what has happened with threads is that Twitter is now being siphoned off so that it's losing people. So now the audience is only a certain type of person who stays on Twitter, but then the other audience is on threads and the audiences are all over the place. So all you're trying to do is try to garner a little piece yeah. of that audience. Touch, touch, touch upon a, a quarter of a million. Well, I, I just think, I think Jason Aldean is, is struggling. He misses all the attention he got um, from being the performer on stage during that Vegas shooting. Oh, oh right, 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 right. Which is also so. another thing that he would do a video like this okay. after something as tragic as that, and like try to incite more anger. It doesn't—that's well, that's, that's part of it. The one of the like one of the lyrics in the song, and of course I'm misquoting, but like is something about like trying to come and see what happens when you take our guns after dark, and it's like, well, yeah, like, people shoot all of your fans. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Oh, so it's so fucking wild, like. I just wish people were just simpler. <laughs> it just blows me away that like, you know, I come back to the trans actors in the Barbie movie because when I watch the Barbie movie and what I love is that, you know, now we know the Barbie movie made 150 some million dollars just, just this weekend alone. It's a huge hit. So clearly the conservatives are being laughed at in this moment in terms of their hate campaign for it because it only helped people go see the movie and see what it's all about. And on top of all of that, it just blows me away after watching it that like this trans actress is literally just doing her job. There's no there's no subtle mission behind her performance. There's no subliminal messaging behind it. There's no wink and a nod. It is literally just a person acting in a movie and the sheer presence of that person infuriates other people. And it blows me away that that like that is the least Christian thing you can do. Yes. 
That's mm-hmm. right. She's not doing anything to antagonize mm-hmm. a single person. Yeah. She's acting. She's doing her job and making nothing of nothing of it about identity politics. And yet the yes, you're right. The like holier than thou Christian right are the ones to get mad because of her mere existence. Yeah. And they are clearly in the wrong. Yeah. And good for yeah. her. Just exist. But but so says these two Jews. I mean, come on. <laughs> Not even joking. All right, everyone, despite our guest's name being a a bizarro version of my own, uh, (laughs) I met Brian, who is an incredibly talented writer and comedian and improviser at a bar recently. And unlike most gay men, I actually really liked him. So please, everyone, welcome (laughs) Brian Gallivan to the podcast. Hey, Brian. Hi, everyone. Brian, it's so rare for Brent to like anybody other than us he doesn't even like he doesn't follow us on instagram he i barely like my friends no no that's (laughs) he actually said that when we my partner mike and i were leaving that night he was like i was telling john hartman who was with us yeah i they they don't bug the shit out of me (laughs) (laughs) well i i do this thing whenever i i'm i'm a i'm a big one on i like one-on-one time and i like knowing what i'm getting into so uh, when I go to a bar and I'm meeting one friend and I show up and he has two friends there, I'm like, oh, great. Here we go. I got to, you know, I got to meet Caleb or whatever. And and so I always have a nasty attitude. But then you you and your partner were just so likable and endearing immediately. And so it was a pleasure to meet you guys. That's so nice. I think we were also like, Wait, John Hartman has friends we don't know about. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> there is something weird. I, I get I get jealous. Alan was one of these guys when when we were when we all lived in New York. We would go to a bar and Alan Alan knew fucking everyone. And every time you went to a bar, we would see you know, a million people that Alan knew. And and it, of course, in your twenties, that's a little bit more exciting because you're like. Oh, all right. Meet random people, or you know, yeah. whatever. Or, uh, and then obviously, again, as you get older, you're like, eh, this is well, I'm, now it's this. so funny because when I go out with my with Michael with my boyfriend, we I'm still I'm I'm still that person who like I I mean I just know I mean I I'm friendly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I make friends, and and uh, and it's it's the same situation where like you know we're just stuck in conversations. Yeah. <laughs> But you know that's weird, right? That I mean, friend- I don't think no. See, here's the thing: I don't think I'm friends with everyone. That's I think that's a that's a that's a miscalculation. My friend group is actually very tight. Like my core group is that I text on a daily basis is very tight. Whereas like the people I just know from either drag or performing or like you know just like other worlds that I'm writing or whatever like. I, I casually would make conversation with them. We'll, we'll recognize each other. We're, you know, whatever, whatever. But like, we're not like, I'm not going to like be like, let's go to brunch. I would never go to brunch with them. I don't even go to brunch with these guys. Yeah. I was going to ask, are they in your core group? Or oh, no? Of course. Good question. I was wondering yeah. the same thing because we don't no, text well, every day. But yeah. That was apparently do, the litmus test. We do text every day. What are you talking about? But there's <laughs> no, how you can tell is, you know how on the iPhone they can organize like groups of, of people Elliot and Brent group text, and then Brent and, and Elliot separately. Oh, very nice. In the top, in the top. I'm just very saying. special about that. 
Just Brian, like, before we get into your career, I, you have a great partner and you guys have been together for a while. Are you are you like, do you consider yourself social butterflies? Do you guys go out a lot or you do you kind of stay in? I think it's a good mix. It's about half and half. Like, I'm very excited to just the two of us chill with our dog on the couch and watch yeah. our programs. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. uh, Arthur. <laughs> like, yesterday we actually had a brunch for... And 15 or 13, counting us, 13 people came over for brunch, which was oh, kind wow. of and, and Mike's friend Emily helped cook and another friend, uh, people brought stuff. So that part was fun. And yeah. it was a fun day. And it was great to, I like, I like that. I am very social and I like, I'm, I'm one of six kids. So I like, like a lot of um, people around, but yeah. then when they all yeah. left, we're like, oh, we can watch. And just like that, Project Runway and <laughs> Untucked. Yeah, Wait, it, what was the last one? Untucked from the finale of All Stars. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting how I I'm I consider myself also a very social guy, but one of my traditions I go to whenever I go to a party is I will just kind of sneak off on my own oh, uh, for like know. five we ten minutes at a time. After like an hour, I just need like ten minutes to refresh, go to the bathroom, hey, maybe go Brian, outside. I have to tell you. Back in the early days of us moving here to Los Angeles, but he would do it in New York too. We would go to what was what was it called? What was Heart called before? Rage. Was rage, rage. We would go to Rage or whatever whatever gay bar in West Hollywood, and it would just be oftentimes Brent and I. Sometimes Elliot would also join because Elliot moved here later than us, and Brent would just leave, disappear, like, just like disappear for like 15, 20 minutes. And of course, I'm fine on my own at a bar. But also, like, I've never experienced that with a friend that I've I've. I agreed would do to the rounds. I, I would see meet, who's around. I would agree to meet up with them at the bar. And they would <laughs> be here. Like also, twenty minutes is a, a cartoonish exaggeration. Is I would it? do the rounds, and I would take about eight to ten minutes to <laughs> myself to see who's around, put out the vibe. Now, Brian, Brian you, so oh, go ahead, Elliot. I'm gonna. I just was curious. Like, you're very like you're not quiet but you're very reserved and like demure i guess i was gonna you have great know, hair right? great hair great hair but are you how social are you how social are you in terms of like the gay scene with a partner or before you had a partner like how has that always worked for you uh, i've always i was always very bad at having gay friends for a, a long time yeah, like when yeah. i first came out it was like Hey, straight ladies, I'm gay. <laughs> um, and took a while. Then I worked at a restaurant in Boston um, called Club Cafe. It's like a gay bar and a restaurant. And I was a waiter there. And the and that was the name for a bar like that or Club, club Cafe. It's yeah, like Club yeah. Cafe. You're right. Both yeah. graphics. Cafe for the women. Club for the fags. Yeah. Right? It's like. Yeah. <laughs> It was, uh, somebody told me later, they're like, oh, that place had a lot of sweater gays. What does like, that mean? Gays with nice sweaters, I guess. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's okay. The gay, no, it's what Brent makes fun of me at the bar. Cause in New York, I used to like read a book at a bar, like, like happy hour, like on my own, like quiet dive bar. But Brent would love to make fun of me for that. So I think that I'm don't. the gay that is the sweater gay. Sweater okay. gay. Alan is certainly a bookish nerd gay. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That one of one of the biggest fights Mike and I ever had was he was planning a road trip to Cedar Point amusement park. Yes. Um, very familiar. With a few gay friends. And I was like, well, I, he's like, but you don't want to go. You hate roller coasters. I'm like, 
but I love road trips. Yeah. And I want to go. And he's like, well, what will you do? I'm like, I'll just bring a book. He's yeah. like, you cannot read a book in an amusement park. That's insane. <laughs> like he was so, I was like, what are you talking about? You read a book anywhere, right? Yeah. It's, it's actually funny you say that because we would go to Cedar Point as a family and my mom hates roller coasters. So my dad, my brother and I would get in line for, you know, hours at a time and my mom would just wait for us. And that was it. Yeah. yeah. And in hindsight, we could have, she could have just gotten in line with us and like chatted and then just not gotten on the roller coaster. She probably didn't want to be around you guys. Yeah. That was probably needed a little bit of a break. Yeah. So Brian, I, I love reading people's, uh, uh, I love reading about people's careers via their no nonsense, the no nonsense prose of Wikipedia. Okay. And on your Wikipedia page, it says, quote, Brian created the web series Sassy Gay Friend. The series depicts events that may have transpired if famous women and a few men in literature, film and history had been advised by the titular character. <laughs> so <laughs> very stoic description of what is a super funny um uh, character that 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 you created and you did a lot of improv and stuff when you first came to LA right before you got into yes. writing yeah I sort of um even in Boston I was a middle school teacher uh oh. for five years language arts social wow. studies um and while I was doing that I took my first improv class and loved it and so um I also have something called super dementia. I really don't, but I can't remember what your question was already. I, but the, the reason was because there wasn't a question. Oh, <laughs> and okay. I was just sort of introducing you and your career. Uh, and I'm oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, can I ask you a little bit about what was yeah. teaching like in Boston in like in that era? Middle uh, school too. That's the worst. Middle school's a middle rough school was, year. Um, yeah. And I taught, I taught it in a Catholic school in Ooh. Boston for a year and a half. And, um, and that was pretty wild. Uh, middle school is terrible. No one should yeah, ever teach yeah. middle school. Is yeah, what I yeah. think. It should be but, AI um, taught. Yeah. <laughs> the the uh, I every now and then I'd want I'd watch like Mr. Holland's Opus or Sister Act Two, and I'd be like, I'm gonna reach them through music. <laughs> right. um, I didn't teach music, uh, so <laughs> right. I would just be disappointed all the time. And then I taught in this suburb called Belmont, which uh, is pretty upper middle class like Mitt Romney lived there when mm -hmm. he was and that was also so terrible <laughs> um but the parents were very involved and were like yeah. wanted um a lot but um it was bad I, I have three siblings who are still teachers wow. and my dad was a teacher forever so there are ways to be a teacher and really enjoy it and be good at it but I yeah ended up lying to my students my car was stolen but i told them their essays were in it so i wouldn't have to grade them oh grade my god to grade a middle school essay i always ask that friends or ask friends who were teachers like why like my friends who were on our teachers why they chose like what grade to teach my friend who taught middle school a couple of my friends who taught that age have said like well it's the age where you can either like get them you know like get them to stay on their track or like they're they're sort of like a lost cause or whatever mm -hmm. and i judge by the, a different barometer which is like middle school is like when they stink like that stink of kid <laughs> i feel like of middle school is like where kids are like the grossest and like hygiene is the gnarliest and like it <laughs> smells and <ugh. laughs> that the, the idea of being around kids that age is repulsive to me 
And some of them are nice. And I taught sixth grade and eighth grade. Like I moved around. So sometimes I'd have a kid twice, sixth grade oh. and eighth grade. And some of them are lovely in sixth grade and assholes in eighth grade. And some wow. of them were like That's the kid I drove me nuts when he was in sixth grade and eighth grade. It was like, remember when you told us not to like say gay as an insult? I always think about that. Oh, wow. Like, wow. I reached you. That should have like, I mean, teaching middle school probably prepared you for how annoying people would be in improv, right? Like, yeah, they really helped. Yeah. And actually, when I was leaving teaching, I started trying to do improv with them, like during a study hall with these wild boys who I could never control. And yeah, I was like, oh, they love this. And this would have helped. Like, if I, yeah. anything, I would have used improv. Um, but yes, there are plenty of people in improv just as annoying as between <laughs> boys and girls. I had never even considered that. That's actually a really smart thing to, to get like attention star or, or a short attention span kids to do is improv. It seems like a really smart way they to kind of watch that and get like good feedback. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's like used in like, I mean, I think improv companies and like schools and stuff they do a lot of like corporate stuff and like, you know, team building stuff. Like it's like a, it's, yeah. like, it's like a tool that I think yeah, a lot of sure. people use. I never found it particularly enjoyable, but I'm sure it's good for other people. Yeah. It's so Brian, I want to talk, I know you wrote for happy endings, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and Elliot still talks about how that is like the most real realistic depiction of a gay character on TV. Um, sometimes I feel like we're going backwards. So did you have, uh, like, what was it like working for Happy Endings, which had a, you know, really strong cult following? And, and did you, were you kind of honing your own experience when you were writing for Adam Pally? Um, it, it, it's interesting. I joined in season three. So they had done like a season and a half because they had a shorter first season and they hadn't, they didn't have a gay writer until mm. then. Um, oh, how dare they? <laughs> you? There, what'd you say? Until you? Until me, yeah. So season three, they were like, we should get a gay writer. Uh, and I really enjoyed the staff. It was great. Um, I learned so much. And I, I was, there were 17 writers in season three, which is a pretty big writer's room. And they would split it all up into fun groups doing different things. But I was the 17th. Uh, lowest, as, lowest on the totem pole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, but I was the second oldest because I got into this very late. So it was like, this interesting um, experience where they were like, you have a lot of experience uh, in life uh, <laughs> as a disappointing gay man. Uh, but I knew Adam Pally a little bit just from UCB out here. And, um, you know, they had already established the characters by season three, but um, we did do some fun episodes. Like there was an episode in season three about like what type of gay are you and that was the best that was the best it was fun um to to do that and um i i had a crush on damon wayans jr at the time oh, and uh, i have a crush on Pete. yeah yeah, yeah wait, wait, which i forget which wayans but it's like which, wayans which family in general i'd take them all like, i'd put a mask yeah. on and do whatever yeah. they wanted talented <laughs> Uh, but at some table read, the actor who played, like, there was a very flamboyant friend of of theirs, uh, I think it was Derek, would show up. I forgot his name. Yeah. But um, he, the actor, Stephen Gorino, couldn't be at the table read, so I got to read the table, and he had a flirty moment with Damon Wayans Jr. 
And so I got to like say a very flirty thing to him uh, um, wow. in front of all my colleagues who knew I was in love with him. Oh, wow. And, uh, it was just, I just sort of sold it. Sold. <laughs> was there a connection in the moment? What do you think? We're still together. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. I was going to say, that's spank bank material. That's that, <laughs> that, that uh, Brent, love, you love Marlon Wayans, Brent. That's it. That's it. He's, he's so fucking Damon Wayans Jr. is the son of Damon Wayans, but you are a Marlon guy. I will say I have forever will always will always stay true to my number one love, which was Sean Wayans in the 90s. He was, without a doubt, the hottest human being I could imagine. And ironically, played like was always like the faggy butt of the joke in every iteration of scary movie like always the butt of the joke for being faggy or feminine or whatever so it was really a, a, a i don't a know the difference problem. between any of them really but i would take the brothers the sisters the dads the i mean <laughs> you take literally him. i don't care anyweighing they can they can just come right on over like <laughs> i thought you were gonna say i don't know the difference between faggy and feminine <laughs> that's what i thought too i also don't know that <laughs> Uh, so I also I also know obviously you created uh, a show called The McCarthys about a close knit Boston family, uh, and uh, one of the central characters is a gay son. So I'm assuming you kind of pulled a lot from your own experience. It sounds like from being a from a large Irish Irish Catholic family in in Boston. What was it? What was that like? And the sort of the coming out process and everything. And that was a huge jump, right? I mean, you you were working on um, that wasn't long after Happy Endings that you were running a big giant multi-cam sitcom that must have been i'm assuming very stressful yeah it's it's interesting with the strike now like when they talk about how lower level writers don't get to go to set anymore or don't get to like be in editing or learn all these things you need to run a show like by the time the that pilot got picked up i had been involved like i co-wrote and wrote episodes of happy endings that i was on set for and in editing for and went to production meetings and um i had worked on a multicam called are you there chelsea mm -hmm. the viewers yeah were not there yeah but, <laughs> um chelsea was mm -hmm. uh, so i had some multicam experience and and actually the mccarthy's we did a single cam pilot one year that came close and didn't then we made a multicam the next year but anyway my time on happy endings really helped because it all sort of started happening at the same time and um i just basically in the pitch told here's like here's what happened when i came out to this brother here's what happened when i came out to this brother and yeah. this and my parent like it was just yeah the actual were they all nightmares were they all good what was it like uh it was fun one of my brothers he and his wife had like sort of unplanned twins oh wow they hadn't been dating that long they're still together many years later and their kids are grown and um but these twins were like less than a year old and crawling all over them when i was coming out to them and they were sleep deprived and that brother said sometimes i wish i was gay and his wife said i wish you were every day of my life uh, <laughs> yeah. so everyone like Correct. they each had their own sort of thing yeah yeah 
Uh, but America didn't love them, my family. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, think, I mean, I'm always amazed because I love a multicam sitcom and I love the writing of it. I love the structure of it. I love a good multicam. But like, of course, in the past 10 years, they've been slow and sort of dying off. But also like not because like the biggest show on television just a couple of years ago was a multicam sitcom. So it's sort of weird that they were dying off, but yet the number one show is still a multicam made no sense. Like, do you think there's a future for multicam? I, I think it's so hard to make a good one, but it is so fun. It's more fun than making a single cam. Oh, fun. Yeah. The hours are better for everyone. The editing's easier. The it's like doing a show. There's an audience and, but it's just like um, the laughs, like because I was on happy endings, I would be like, I want as many jokes as I can, like boom, 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 boom. But then they have to laugh, so you have to hear the laughs, and then it starts to sound fake. And yeah. um, it's not. There's people there. But my yeah. brother watched the pilot when it aired, and he goes, "Hey, I I really like it. I uh, I think you should get rid of the laughter." <laughs> okay. Um, okay. It's so funny how that's jarring for some people. On yeah. this, I do another like a Golden Girls podcast, and we recently watched um Hot in Cleveland with talking about Betty White. And we watched the pilot of Hot in Cleveland. And I hadn't seen like a like a, a multicam pilot, I don't think, in years really. Like it had been so long. And it was so wild how enjoyable it was to sort of like hear the laughter and have the, and you see the actors wait for the laughter to die down so that Betty White can get that one joke in. And like, it's just, it's this thing, it's this dance between the writing and the actors and understanding the audience. And like, it's just so fucking enjoyable. Yeah. I think it, it can only work with four older women. I write on, I guess, yeah, a bunch of ladies. And, yeah. uh, and that was when we did the multicam with the McCarthy's. Laurie Metcalf played the mom, which was like a dream come true. I loved her. Incredible. And she's amazing. So, like, you just get four like her and you just throw them together. And yeah. it's easy. Why Why aren't we doing it? So, yeah. I, I, uh, I write on iCarly, which is a multicam. And my favorite thing is, well, my, my favorite thing is watching the show in, in its early versions and watching it without any um laughter and i think that is it's the most incredible <laughs> it's the most incredible bizarre medium to imagine a multicam where people just talk and it's pure silence waiting for where it would be you know a laugh spot oh my god even years ago there was randomly some show on i don't even know what network it was on it was called roommates it, like you wouldn't even know of it it, it was like came and went but I was doing some freelance writing for for some for for something, and it sort of came across my 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 eyes, and they accidentally po posted or uploaded footage from the show onto their network website without a laugh track, Ooh. and not only was it like bad to watch, but there was also a deaf character. <gasps> And it made it so much. It was it was every every possible scenario you could imagine that would make it offensive was in play. And so it was, but it was God. It was so great to be able to even witness that before they ripped it from the site. Mm -hmm. So um, speaking of iCarly, uh, there was a happy endings picket reunion because of the strike. The writers yeah. got together, and John Fenner 
was there who worked with you and I, Carly, and we were saying nice things about you. Yeah, I like him. I, I don't want to get in. I don't want to yeah. get, get into all that, Brian. Um, <laughs> real, real quick, I know before we go, I know you were in a movie also with Matt Damon. You were in the the Informant. Do you have any fun Ooh, Matt Damon wow. stories that you want to share with us? I I do think I I booked that role. It was one line, um, and which was cut from the film, but. Um, <laughs> When I booked it, I, I had to fly to Chicago and I told um, this woman, Irene White, who's an actress and improviser, I was like, I booked it. It's one line. She goes, they still had to choose you. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. yeah. So I go and then like go to Decatur, Illinois, which is like yeah. Georgia. Yeah. It's like so not Chicago. Like there was a woman at a subway who's like, do you meet, do you meet Matt Damon yet? Like the, they all knew he was there, and like she didn't know I was in the movie. I was like, no, no, I haven't seen anything. But I got to be in a a little motel room, sitting across from Matt Damon as a reporter, with Soderbergh, going like, "What are you thinking?" Yeah, <laughs> I, like, I don't so know. Cool. I can't tell if this is a comedy or a drama, Steve. <laughs> um, and so Matt Damon's there, and there's we have a little time. We're just chatting while they're setting stuff up, and. uh he said, where are you from? And I said, Boston. And he goes, me too. <laughs> like, I don't know. That. You wouldn't know. Yeah, right, right. Uh, but he was friendly and nice. And He's one of those people that, like, I really work hard to hate, but I can't. Hate? Yeah. 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 I, wanna, I, don't, I don't hate Matt I, Damon. Yeah. I want to hate him. I want. There's something about Matt Damon that I just really want to hate. But then I watch his movies and I'm like, God, fucking damn it. You're good. I hate you. And he's, he's really he's really gotten hotter with age in a way that I find that I disagree. What? I disagree with that. I do disagree. Oh my with God. That. I'm sorry. Nothing can top those school ties moments or whatever that movie. Like that is peak Matt Damon's day. Like Dane, him in the showers and school. I'm sorry. No, nothing. School top ties. How about I think about those apples? That's the hot Matt Damon. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, well, Brian Gallivan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we love you dearly as a friend, of course, but where can people, where can our listeners follow you, find you on the internet? Oh, God, they'll be so disappointed. Uh, <laughs> my name is Uncle Barney 5 on Instagram. Is it really? I thought I, I, thought I was doing a um, name for myself that I would log in as. I didn't know it was. <laughs> It's actually like oh. a nickname in my family. And I'm on Twitter just <laughs> lurking and never yeah. posting. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you again, Brian. Brian. We, we appreciate you doing the podcast. Oh, this was so fun. And another thing. Uh, so Queer Eye for the Straight Guy premiered 20 years ago. Uh, this was its 20th anniversary. Uh, it premiered actually on... Uh, July 15th, 2003, and became the highest rated series in Bravo's then, and I couldn't believe it when I read it, 23-year history. Yeah, because um, Bravo used wow. to be like a like an arts channel. They would show opera and like foreign right. films. And used to oh, play. Yeah, right, before, <laughs> being, before being Bobby Brown. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> but they right. were, uh, they, yeah, so it had been around for 23 years just by 2003, and this show was obviously not just a huge hit for the network, but became a cultural phenomenon. When yeah. in 2004, it was they were on Barbara Walters' list of the most 10, 10 most fascinating people alongside Beyonce and LeBron James. And so, you know, for those who don't know um, the original Queer Eye, it was, you know, 
these five gay men, the, the Fab Five, as they were called. Um, I, th- I think our listeners know the, know the, the yeah, original they know. Era, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, did food and wine, kind of yeah. hair. Yeah. Tom did interior design. Carson Kressley was fashion and culture. Culture was Jay Rodriguez, my high school. Yeah. Right, you went to high school but, with him. Um, yeah, but anyway, so it uh, it was 20 years this week, and I'm wondering how much it, if at all, impacted you guys then, now, um, obviously the- So certainly I was not, uh, I, you know, we we know how Alan stands uh, on the, the new iteration of of Queer Eye. We talked about that actually, right? I think that it came out when we started this podcast. Yeah, the, the new iteration. Yeah, uh, I definitely did not get in, into the new iteration, and I didn't love the old the old one, but I I I know I watched it, and I do, but I do remember this, and this was sort of its cultural significance to me. I knew that my family was always open minded and and allies and so forth. But when I found out they had watched that show, I think my brother and my parents individually had watched Queer Eye. That's when I was like, oh, wow, I guess they're like, you know, they're they're supportive. And that was the and and then, of course, you know, this was, I guess, maybe a simpler time when when just finding out if like a college class classmate of yours had watched Queer Eye, you're like, he's an ally, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so, so yeah, I mean, in that regard, it was, it was, it was certainly significant, but that's, that's pretty much Well, that's the impact. I think, I think that's the biggest, that's the same impact for me. I never really watched, I watched, I mean, I think I I don't remember, I have no memories of any particular episode, but I know I watched it. And I think I watched it mainly to see the straight people. Like I watched it for the straight people because I wanted to see how they reacted to these five homosexuals. Yeah, right, right. That was sort of my viewing. But I know that the rest of the audience was probably watching for the five queer guys and not for the straight people. And so it was the same experience. And I think that's probably the best takeaway from it is that it allowed queer people into people that's the best space of reality television the power of reality television in that it wasn't a scripted show like will and grace or ellen it wasn't it wasn't fantasy it wasn't sort of like you know too far out of reach for these people to see these people on television and yeah they're literally coming into regular people's homes and participating and changing their lives in different ways and regular people who aren't punching them yes and that's a huge huge impact that you know people i don't think in a lot of areas of america ever saw and this was just a couple of years after you know ellen was 97 i think and stations wouldn't even air the episode that of ellen's coming out and yet career yeah you know bombed after that yeah and then cut to you know just a couple of years later with queer eye and well no it did like her career like she had a, she had another show that got canceled like she could yeah. not get work mm-hmm. and it was yeah. only until her talk show i think in 2003 that like something hit that we were allowed she was allowed back into but again, it to it but again it was something the same power as queer eye in that like it was reality it was her on a daytime talk show just being her and it wasn't this character and i think that's there's something about the power of reality tv and daytime tv that like if you see them in that personal way in your living room it's a different, it hits different than you see them on Will and Grace or on Ellen, the TV show. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, I, lo- I really liked it at first when it came out and I was really into watching it. It's funny because I didn't, I, I didn't relate to any of them and I, I you know, I, I, I just didn't, but I thought it was really interesting that they were so non-threatening and so essentially like boyishly, cartoonishly cute 
you know, like 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 little like almost like little kids, you know, mm-hmm. and they were they but they were charming in that way, and that they really were not they they were so non threatening, but they didn't threaten masculinity. It seemed like yeah. that was like the big thing. They didn't threaten anybody's masculinity when they went into their homes, and so I I definitely felt the effects of it too. It just felt like this huge paradigm shift where suddenly the these people that you just didn't know straight people like didn't know or really contend with and maybe didn't have hatred for or disdain for but just didn't understand or didn't think about they didn't like understand their life it's a different thing Mm -hmm. these these people were completely accessible kind empathetic playful and in it, it just really held that kind of power where i certainly felt this like shift in like the cultural atmosphere where suddenly it felt a little less threatening mm-hmm. be and I, I mean i was pretty newly gay at that point too but it felt like less threatening to say it and that i feel like was to me personally it just felt like i attributed that to the ubiquitousness of the show i still yeah. know i mean to this day i still don't know what jay did on that show i don't know <laughs> I mean, his well, role, didn't he, always, he always taught them to like tap dance or something. Yeah, right? I, I remember. I remember <laughs> even at the time, like, I mean, he seems like a nice guy and I've, I've met him and know him since. But like I had a huge crush on him. I, I mean, I think most him. people did. He was definitely huge sort of supposed crush. to be the Rob, I think, of the show. Yeah, he's sure. a nice guy. And um, but at the time, I remember watching it being like, what do you do? Like, there's that line from Drag Race with Bianca being like, Tell me one thing you do successfully. And like, I, I, I attribute that to Jay. I don't know what he did successfully on that show, but, but, but like, didn't Ted, a career. <laughs> didn't Ted like show him how to like pour wine in a wine glass or something? At least that that's, that's tangible to me. The, all the other yeah. guys, tangible, physical things that I could attach to what they do successfully. Jay was like, so what do you feel? <laughs> I think that, and that was funny too, because I was like, what does he know? I mean, I, I knew him from high school. I'm like, what does he know? He was in Rent. But uh, oh. underbelly to the show, the only like, I think, downfall, not downfall, the only drawback of the show for me was that as much progress as it helped create, and it did, it really did seem to change things. I then was, I sort of got to a point where I was like, well, I don't relate to these guys in the sense that I don't know anything about hair. I don't know f- food wine clothes you know like cleaning, yeah. design none of these things felt like things i i felt it i mean that i felt some sort of connection to or, or like a skill set that i i had and so i think that was sort of the beginning of understanding my disconnection disconnection from the community in the sense that i never in intrinsically felt like well honey i, I can you know turn you out in a i can tap dance or whatever yeah. <laughs> like, i have none, i don't know those things it, it reinforced the trope of like that. you know the the line that i think you don't hear as much anymore i don't think but that like women i mean mainly women would say to gay men being like let's go shopping i feel like there was sort of that trope that that sort of you know feeling that was a part yeah. of it um, and I never really responded to that, even though I think in all intents and purposes, I would be the homosexual to go shopping with someone. But I, I oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say real quick, I actually still have these memories. I, again, I think this is coming from a place of privilege. But I, you know, growing up in a college town that's so liberal, I still have memories of several female friends of mine uh, telling me they wish they had a gay friend. 
Oh, really? And like, you, yeah. You were out? I, I, I was not out to almost oh, oh. anyone in, in high school. And I, I, in hindsight, I'm like, oh, maybe they were like winking or something. I, I don't know. But it was just, it was, I don't know. It's like Meanwhile, so sweet you, to think in like. If you came out, you would have been like, I could help you bum cigarettes and I could show you where to get <laughs> corn. <laughs> <laughs> What would your aunt say? Grant, what would your Aunt Ramona say about something she heard on today's show? I can't believe it's been 20 years since I protested outside of Bravo. <laughs> My Aunt Joanne would say, you know, there's never been a Jewish Spider-Man, although I was gunning for Elliot Gould. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Wow. Um, that would be that would be something else. How about Aunt Anne? Aunt Anne would say, they're surprised that Spider-Man went gay. Have they seen his costume? <laughs> <laughs> oh, everyone. That's the gayest, I think, of all of the superhero costumes is Spider-Man mm. costume. It is so... No, Batman has nipples. Yeah, but Batman's like like muscly and matte like it's like he, yeah it's almost like he-man in a way yeah. where like spider-man looks like just like a little twink who's just like i'm playing dress up for the bar to actually this over here boys <laughs> this is the crazy part El elliot once told <laughs> elliot once told me when he goes to batman he buys he buys three seats in a row so he can watch it with his legs spread the whole time <laughs> <laughs> So Why do I need three seats in that scenario? <laughs> well, because your I, legs are spread. Wait, before we even go, three. I have to ask you guys: When you're in a theater, if you book if you book seats for a theater, do you do you book the seats next to uh, already reserved seats, or do you try to get a space between you? Space. Between. I, I I try I try to if I can. Yeah. Okay, good. Because I Michael, okay. I'm right about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he want he why he cares about efficiency in movie theaters. Yeah, yeah. That's really funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>